powerful way that you would uh, bless Tim with a joyful heart and, 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 and clarity as he teaches us at this time. Uh, God, open our ears and our, and our hearts to respond. Yeah, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Brian. Hey, everybody. Um, I want to start off by doing just a tiny little apology ahead of time. I was at this conference this last week with Brian and Kelly and a bunch of others, and I may or may not have sung at the top of my lungs a lot. Uh, and so I definitely have like a raspy thing going on, and every once in a while I might break off into a cough, but please stay patient. I will come back to the mic, I promise. Um, as Brian mentioned, like it is just, it's a complete privilege and joy. My wife is actually down here in the front row. Um, and we actually remember when Rehope was just like a dream. I remember sitting in the, in the lounge, in Brian and Kelly's lounge with like 14 people. And those were mostly just our children. And that was, yeah, and that was it. That was, you know, that was the beginning. Uh, but it's an amazing thing. I, I'm like looking around and seeing all these faces of people that I know. Uh, it's super exciting to be here. So um, there's a ton of things about here about Rehope that are so similar to the culture that we have actually at Westside. One of the one of the things I was just reminded of like a few months ago was Crooksy. If you guys remember him, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Yes, he's doing awesome though. We love him. Uh, he's just having an incredible impact on our community. Uh, but we were we were getting into a chat about fasting, and and he mentioned to me like, oh yeah, because like Rehope's and they're and they're fast right now, and they're kind of the annual time in the beginning of the year. And I was like, oh, so am I right now, and he was as well. And it was kind of like one of those things I realized, oh, this rhythm of fasting, like old habits die die hard. I, I still definitely have my heart here, and a lot of Brittany and I love so much of what you guys are up to, and so much we care about. Um, but in the midst of that, there was actually a passage that uh, kind of was leaping out to me as I was kind of processing and thinking about fasting uh, in this next season. And it was actually there that God began to do kind of a new work uh, in my life, and, and at the same time, com completely separately in my wife's life, uh, with this one passage that we're going to talk about today. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and like flip open to Luke 5. Now, just so I'm clear, uh, today's passage kind of leaps off talking about fasting, but really fasting isn't the point of the passage. It's kind of, um, it's kind of Jesus's inroad to talk about some other stuff that he really cares about. And so I want to read this passage. We're looking at Luke 5, verses 33 through 39. So let me read it out. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, no one, or not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new, because he says the old is better. Let me just uh, pray as, I kinda, as we jump into this. Father, we thank you so much for your scriptures, for your truth. Jesus, we thank you so much for, for leading us through your life. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for teaching us even as we're here. And right now, we just confess that we're dependent on you. I feel a little fragile with my voice being a little shaky and, 
And anything that happens in this next like 30 minutes to four, four hours, depending upon how long it goes, uh, anything that happens, Lord, is totally dependent on you. Like you have to show up. You have to be our teacher. And so we look to you. Our eyes are on you. Would you teach us today from your words? We love you, Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on you. Amen. So for a bit of context and a bit of kind of like setting the stage, I just want to kind of like talk a little bit about what's been going on in chapter 5 so far of Luke, okay? He begins this chapter by calling some of his first disciples. And they're like these like ragtag, like stick your foot in your mouth fishermen who are always getting into trouble. They're rough around the edges. And that was a little bit unusual. But then Jesus goes, and he heals uh, this paralyzed person, and he, and he heals this, this person who's got leprosy, and he uses these really unusual phrases. He, he says, be clean, or, um, or I forgive you of your sins. And that kind of gets, that creates a little bit of controversy too. The, the Pharisees are really not happy with that kind of phrases, and, and, and he's starting to stand out a little bit, but that's not all. To, to kind of keep stirring it, he then calls uh, his next disciple, whose name was Levi, or we might know him as Matthew, an unclean traitor tax collector to be one of his disciples. Now, this was very controversial. And, and, and people are looking at him and they're paying attention to them. And as if to like draw even more attention to it, he then goes and attends a party at Matthew's house with all of his sinner friends. As a complete aside, don't you love Jesus? Like, he's amazing. Like, he, he has no problem with, like, stirring it up, mixing it up every once in a while, stepping into issues. He has no problem with, like, stepping towards broken people. Like, he goes to the places that nobody else wants to go to. I love Jesus. Like, I, I love reading about his life. I love the things that he cares about. You know, it, he, he doesn't let people's opinions of him drive his decisions. Instead, he lets his love for his father and his love for humanity drive his decisions. He's amazing. But if you were one of the religious elite at this moment, you would not be happy. I mean, you would be scratching your head, maybe even pulling out your beard, frustrated. Who is this guy? I mean, they can't make sense of the things that he's doing. All these unusual disciples and the ways that he's doing his healing. Um, there's so much about Jesus that doesn't make sense to our Pharisees. So much so that by the time we get to verse 30, this kind of question like stumbles out of their mouth. Why do you eat and drink with sinners? What are you doing, Jesus? Now, this is, this is one of those times where our familiarity with Jesus can kind of get in the way a little bit. Because we know about Jesus. We, we know that he's, he's the good guy, right? And that the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? And, and we know that Jesus is this guy that, like, he loves to eat. I mean, he's, like, always on his way to a meal or at a meal or just left a meal. I mean, like, food is really important to him. He's like, oh, don't have enough food? I'm going to make some more, you know? Like, he's, he's, the kind of be he's, he's the kind of God that just likes to eat. So much so that, like, we begin to see it as a common thread, the Pharisees saw it as a thread. It's, it's one of those things that we have to be careful of because we begin to kind of compartmentalize the Pharisees as the bad guys and Jesus as the good guy, but what, what we miss is the tension and the complexity of the moment. Man, the Pharisees thought, the religious leaders of the time were confused because their understanding of the law was that they were supposed to be set apart. 
they were supposed to be something different from the rest of the people on the earth. That was their understanding of what they had read. They thought that they were following God correctly, that they were doing the right kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. There was, there was a handful of them that were corrupt and twisted and they, they would ultimately crucify him. But most of them were just simply confused and they were, thought they were following the rules. They were getting top marks. They're trying to stay clean and stay away from broken things and broken people. Which is why Jesus' response is so profound, right? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus tells them, I'm not here for the people who have it all together. Like, I'm here for those who don't have it together, those who are on the outside. My mission, says Jesus, means moving beyond the religious rules towards those who need purpose, healing, and freedom. The thing is, I think, I think the Pharisees actually knew this a little bit. It was in the back of their minds because they knew passages like Isaiah 49, 6, where God tells his people through the prophet, like, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protective ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Like on some level, they, they would have memorized these passages. And on some level, they knew that they were supposed to be for people, but they were confused. Which leads them to this next question. It's kind of a, a statement with an implicit question in it. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Yeah, okay, Jesus, like, but you are doing things so differently than everybody else. I mean, even John the Baptist and his disciples are confused. I mean, there's a system here, Jesus. I don't know if anybody told you. We've got some rules and some regulations that you have to follow. Like, I mean, you're always like eating and drinking and, and hanging out with broken people. Life isn't supposed to be all about fun and games, Jesus. What does all of this, the way you're living your life and your mission, Jesus, have to do with following and worshiping God? And I don't know about you guys, but I imagine that Jesus has like a little twinkle in his eye when he, when he responds. Because I imagine my Jesus has a twinkle in his eye. I don't know why. I just, it's just there, right? And so he like looks at them and he's got like in his eye like, well, I'm glad you asked. Because he's set them up. He's pulled them into this conversation and he's got them right where he wants them. Now, I want to be clear because the Pharisees were confused. I want to make sure that we're not confused. Jesus did actually fast. And he actually, and we know this from Luke 4, verse 2. And he actually did teach his disciples to do the same. In Matthew 6, we see that. But it's interesting because in the entire New Testament text, we never see a time where Jesus and his disciples are actually fasting together. It's never described. Instead, we have this ongoing stories about him teaching and preaching, about him healing people, about him eating, about him hanging out with broken people. That's what we get. That's what the gospel writers thought was the most important stuff for us. The religious leaders are so frustrated. But is their frustration really around Jesus' social schedule? Are they just sick and tired of his party lifestyle? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think their frustration is about their pride. Jesus is breaking their precious rules. 
And they're so focused on their own agenda and they're so focused on what their religion requires of them that they don't have the ability to lift up their head and see what Jesus is actually calling them to. And you know what? I do this all the time. I call it an exercise in missing the point royally. And you'll get that that's a play on words in just a second. So a handful of days ago, it was Thursday. Was it Thursday, babe? Yeah. So we are, um, we were down at this conference and we're staying at a flat that's really kind of close to where the conference hall was. And I'm, I'm like hurting the, uh, hurting cats. I'm like hurting my elders, okay? And they're like all over the place. I mean, they just, I, so I'm like trudging out ahead, like, okay, follow me. Just when, wherever I go, just go where I go. And I'm getting, I'm kind of at the end of the week. I'm getting a little tired, a little frustrated, I'm really fixating on like the, uh, the, the concrete that's right in front of me so that I can get to the flat and get my backpack off and all that kind of stuff. So I get to the door, I open up the door, I take off my bag and I toss it down on the bed and I suddenly realize there's nobody behind me. I've left everyone behind. I'm like, oh man, again? So, so but right in the midst of that, I hear this kind of like giddy like a schoolgirl kind of giggle coming from the front door. And I go and I look down where the front door is and sure enough, they're all there like right around the front door and they're all giggling and squeaking and laughing and there's this really funny thing happening that I can, apparently I just missed. And in my focus and in my desire to kind of get to the, the end game, to get to the flat, I had walked right by Kate Middleton. You know, the Duchess of Cambridge. <laughs> I just walked on by like right right by her, her and the kids. Hey, look at that. Totally didn't see them. I missed it royally. And, you, and, that, and that's the thing is that like we do this, don't we? Like we, we get so focused on, on what's right in front of us, on the, the thing that's right there that we, we begin to lose step with what's around us. And where could God be calling us? What could God be saying to us? But Jesus is compassionate. And he deals with his surface level question just like he deals with mine. And he does it by answering the question in verse 34. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In one immense statement, Jesus both points to his identity, the groom from Revelation that's awaiting his glorious bride, the church, and he pokes at the heart of what fasting actually is. Fasting at its core is a sign that a person is dissatisfied with the way that their life is going and the world is headed. And it's a physical way to point at a future hope when God will someday restore righteousness and restore justice on his earth by sending his Messiah. But the thing was, for the disciples, the Messiah was already there. Jesus was there. So there was really no reason for them to fast. Yet a time would come soon when Jesus would be taken away from them. You see, a part of the problem was is that the Pharisees weren't fasting for those reasons, right? I mean, at best, they were probably fasting, you know, for some sort of, like, to earn some sort of favor with God. But at worst, they were probably just fasting to look good in front of other people around them. No, they weren't fasting for this longing, this, like, this someday Messiah hope. They were fasting for their own reasons, their own religious reasons. 
So Jesus' answer would have set them back on their heels, and it would, have, it would have challenged their identity. It would have challenged the way that they thought about who they were. He knew that this question was just a surface-level thing, and so as Jesus does, he pushes past the question into the deeper things. You know, I wonder, as an aside, how often we as followers of Jesus kind of fall, find ourselves in this exact same place. You know, where, where our version of following God comes in conflict with how God actually wants to be followed. Yeah, Jesus, I know that you want me to love you with all of my heart, but man, the, the competition for my attention is real. And, and, and I'm so distracted all of the time. I'm so divided. Yeah, I know, Jesus, that you want me to love my neighbor, but have you met my neighbor? Like, they're hard to love, you know? And so we come to God on our own, our own um, with our own rules, our own regulations, and God's like, no, that's not how it works. You worship as I call you to worship. I, um, I, was, I was reminded of this, like, just really, like, like, right in my face, actually. At the beginning of the week when we first got to London, like I mentioned, we were staying in this flat. And it was a great, great space, but, man, it had been crazy. We'd been flying all night long, and I'm exhausted, and I hadn't slept, and I hadn't eaten anything. I'm getting kind of grumpy, a little bit hangry, you know. And I'm trying to keep everybody on the same page. And I had this group of people that had never even been out of the United States, and so I'm like, oh, my goodness. It was, it was crazy. Anyways, I'm getting a little frustrated. I finally get them off to, like, some place to go get something to eat. And I'm waiting for the person to let us into our flat. So I wait for about 15 minutes, then about 30 minutes, then it's about an hour. I come up around an hour and 15 minutes, and I'm like, where is this guy? And eventually he shows up in a cab, and within moments, I realize, well, he's quite intoxicated. Very drunk, Okay. And, and so much so that he's, he's, he's like stumbling all over the place. He's the person that's supposed to let me into the flat. He's the person that's supposed to kind of tell me where everything is. And I, a couple of you that were there, you'll know there was like a gazillion buttons in this place. For some reason, I bet you there was like 17,000 switches, you know? And, and so he, and he takes it upon himself to teach me what every single one of them does. So there was this one panel with like 16 buttons and he goes through every single one. And then he turns and, and he tells me about the security system, forgets that he's just told me about these 16 buttons and goes through every single one again, right? And, and about like maybe like 30, 40 minutes into it, I'm like boiling on the inside. Like just like, I'm so done. And he's like, hey, come outside, come outside. So I, I leave the couple of the people I was with on the inside. He gets, like, he, he gets in my face and I can just smell his breath. He's like, how drunk am I? I'm like, well, very? Like, I don't know. How do I measure that, you know? How drunk am I? I'm like, well, he's like, and it was, it was crazy because in that moment, I saw the flicker in his eye. We've all seen it before. It was the flicker of shame. He, he felt like he was feeling this. He felt ashamed of himself in this moment. I saw it. And, and it was like the Holy Spirit just used that as an opportunity to kind of cut in and say, Tim, will you love this guy? Will you, will you have compassion for him? Oh, but God, have you seen my neighbor? See, he doesn't, he doesn't call us to follow him on our terms. We follow him on his terms. But the Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. And I know that this has been a part of my journey as a follower of Jesus. It's, 
It's just too easy to remake God into my own image, too easy to give him the worship that's convenient for me and my lifestyle. Or we're driven by the tyranny of the urgent or, 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 or the fear of missing out or even worse, like the desire to like please other people. And we don't give God the worship that he's due. I think about that story of Saul, right, where he's, he's supposed to wait for Samuel to do the offering. And instead of waiting because he's afraid of the people and he lacks the faith to see what God can do, he does the sacrifice himself. And in that act of faithfulness or faithlessness, he loses everything, like everything. I think often we can fall into that trap. See, God doesn't ask us how we want to worship him. No, he simply calls us to follow him with attentive readiness. Let that phrase sink in, attentive readiness. I'm ready, Lord. So we come with our hands open, and we ask him to lead us. And this is where Jesus begins to pick at the real issue behind the issue. Verse 36, he tells him a parable. Now, just as a bit of detail, it's really, it's probably like a series of three, three little micro parables. We see that kind of repeated phrase, no one, in verse 36 and in 37 and 39. And so this is probably like three little mini parables with one common theme that Jesus is trying to draw home. He's pulling us in and talking us through this story. Verse 36, carrying on. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. Jesus starts his first mini parable, and he talks about something that would be quite common in the first century. And now, in our day, we're fairly accustomed to, like when a piece of clothing wears out, we just discard it, right? Unless, of course, we buy it with holes in it, like my kids do. Does anybody here buy holes in their clothes with their holes? Clothes with holes? Yeah, like we pay more money for clothes with holes. Does that, does that not seem weird to anybody else in this room? Like, maybe it's just me. Anyways, so, but that's not, not the way they would have done it back then, right? They, they purchased, they, they, they would get, if they saved up their money and were able to get a new cloak, the last thing that they would do is damage the new cloak in order to fix the old one. But they also would not get rid of the old cloak. It was just too valuable. Cloth was valuable. The old was valuable, but the new was better. And so you would probably, if you were that, you would probably new, you wear the new one, and then you'd probably keep the old one and try to fix it. But it doesn't end there. Verse 37. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. Again, this idea would have been familiar to those in the first century, but for our foreign ears, it, it maybe takes a little bit of translation. So bear with me as I talk a little bit about some Jewish winemaking 101, okay? Freshly harvested grapes would be put in this like cistern-like space, and then they would be crushed and tread upon by bare feet, which is kind of gross. And then it would sit, it would be allowed to rest for a little while. Meanwhile, they would take a goat skin and they would, they would stitch up the goat skin in such a way to have a loop and they would leave the neck open on the goat skin and they would take the wine and they would pour it into the goat skin and they would allow it to sit for a season of time, a minimum of three months. And over that time, the, the, the process of fermentation would create gas and so it would expand, it would get taunt with pressure and it would stretch out the skins. You could probably use a goat skin like two to four times, depending upon the quality of the goat skin and the quality of the wine. 
But this process uh, is, is kind of similar to our process, right? Minus, I think, I hope, the foot fungus. But anyways, and, and the wine would be a new wine for about, up till about three years. Again, we need to understand how valuable these wineskins actually were. That once they had used up all their stretch, they were still used for carrying water. They were still used for tools. They were, this, was pro, this was valuable property. Jesus isn't devaluing the old. He's saying the old has value, but the new is better. And the new is the thing that's in front of us. Verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new. Because he says the old is better. And this is where the message takes a confusing and slightly provocative twist. Jesus continues with his winemaking conversation, and he states what's probably the most obvious thing so far, which is once you have drunk old wine, which would be about three plus years old, you don't really want new wine because it's bitter and, and it doesn't quite taste right. New wine would have had a very distinct flavor. It, would have, it, would have, it wouldn't have sat really well, but it was still drinkable, and it was better than some of the bad water. But it, it just didn't taste great. Jesus tells his listeners that once you've tasted the old wine, it's really hard to go back to the flavor of the new. And all of his listeners would have nodded in agreement, understanding what he said. But we are left as readers a little bit confused. Wait, what? Jesus, I thought that you were saying that the old was bad and the new was good. But now it kind of seems like you're saying that, that the old is good and the new is bad. I'm confused. And so we we're at the, la the last verse in our read, you know, in our chapter, chapter five. We have this read through we got to get through, right? I got to get through my chapters. Verse six or chapter six is right there, so I'm just going to skip over that because I don't understand what he's talking about. Has anybody ever done that? Nobody in this room, right? It's a little bit confusing. Like, what's what's he saying here? No, I I actually think that sometimes it's in these tension moments, the places that we don't understand, that God does some of his best work. And so Jesus, he's really pressing in. So let's press in with him. Let's dig a little deeper. New wine has been associated biblically, like in Acts 2, verses 13, after the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples in the upper room. And historically, like movements here in the UK, with the Holy Spirit and fresh movements of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself uses drinking wine as a symbol of his new covenant, which is marked by the, by the sending of his Holy Spirit. There's something about this new movement of Jesus that is radically different than the one that's gone before. And it seems as if it's new in every generation. As if we need new wineskins every generation to put the new wine in. It's a definitely, there's a valuing of what's gone before that was good, but there's something new that's on the horizon. We can hear the prophet Isaiah in, verse, in Isaiah 43 saying, Behold, I am doing something new. Pay attention. Like, be attentive. I'm about to do something that's going to blow your mind. And here is the real point that Jesus is driving on through all of these little parables. New wine is immature. 
That's often bitter and harder to drink. And the new wine, though it is associated with harvest and hope, it always means going through being tread upon and being crushed. It's a process involved. There's pressure over time. And when left to our own tendencies, we are apt to go to the old, to the more familiar, to that which we know. And Jesus just states this as a fact. He simply leaves it hanging out there unapologetically. It's as if he says, God's doing new things. All around you, he's on the move. He's on the move there, he's on the move there, and he's on the move right here, right now. But you probably like it the way it is. You probably, you probably like it a little bit more comfortable. Ouch. Ouch, Jesus. Like, he's focusing in, he's saying, like, like I get it. It's easy to be comfortable. It's kind of like a sucker punch, right? Luke is such a great writer. He, he, he engages us, he pulls us in, and then at the last moment, he kind of leaves it out there to say, what are we going to do about this? It's directed at me, it's directed at you, it's directed at this amazing church. Jesus is saying, yes, God has done amazing things in the past, but there is still more. There's still more. And there always will be more. And we can settle for what's comfortable, or we can step into the more. Jesus is saying, yes, move. And if, if we are going to get to there, we will need to create new wineskins, like what you guys are doing with your new locations. And this is a process of creating more space. For what? For God to move more. And tell you what, all of you know this, it would be way more comfortable to just leave things the way they are. In fact, you probably at least everyone here has thought that at some point in time. Man, it would be so great just to kind of leave things as is. But God is always on the move. And there's always more. He's always hanging more out there. And we're going to walk through seasons of crushing and treading and we're going to have to walk through the unfamiliar and sometimes bitter taste of the new. But more than all of this, we have to come with this attentive readiness, this open-handedness to whatever God is calling us to. The problem is, is most of us are a lot like Martha. We're so busy, we're so distracted, it's hard for us to get our eyes off of all of our life and all the bits and pieces to actually listen to what the Spirit of God is trying to say. Have you guys, has anybody in this room played the game Spoons? I couldn't remember if that was like an American thing or if that was like, is this, you guys play Spoons? Is this Spoons? Is it a thing? I'm getting like four of you. So the four of you guys play Spoons together? Is that, a, is that how it works? Yeah, so it's a game, right? It's a card game. And in the card game, you're supposed to like, you're supposed to get four of the same card, okay? Um, but the trick with Spoons is that the card game isn't the game. The actual game is this pile of spoons on the table. Because the moment you get four of the same cards, you like slip in and grab a spoon and pull it out. And the key is don't be the last person, right? Because the last person doesn't get a spoon. Now, why it's spoons, I don't know. Maybe forks were like painful or something. I don't know. It, it can get quite violent if you haven't played the game. Um, but, the, but the trick in it is, the reality of it is, is that the first game, the card game, is just there to be a distraction for the real game of grabbing the spoons. How often is that the case of our life? Yeah, we're playing the card game. But I mean, God's like, there is a bigger game at play here. I got something more for you. 
just stay ready and attentive. Ready and attentive. This is why I love this church. I've been able to watch it right from the early stages and then now from a distance and watch as God has continued to do new things after new things. And it's hard. It's uncomfortable at times. But man, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. New buildings, new parts of the city, new neighborhoods, people to love, people to care for, and all of these things are just preparing for something more. The trick is, is that we all kind of want to get to the old wine. Because let's be honest, it does taste better than the new wine. But there's only one way to get to the old wine. You have to start with the new. And so, I'd like, to, I'd like to leave you guys with like three questions to kind of process and think about. Three things to kind of maybe, I don't know if you got a journal or, an, or, or your phone to tack down. Question number one. What's in your hands right now that is making it impossible to receive new wine from Jesus, from his Holy Spirit? What might, what might God be asking you to lay down? What's, what's there that's getting in the way? It's like the card game. It's the, it's the cards that are in your hand, and even though the spoons are out there and it's time to grab a spoon, you're still stuck in the cards. What's in your hands that God might be asking you to lay down? Question number two. Where are you experiencing treading or crushing right now? Where, where's a part of your life that, if you were to be honest, you were to look at it, it's like, man, I, I just feel like I am being tread down upon. Where is that place? Because remember, that act of treading, is, it's the only way you get to the wine. You got to crush the grapes. And some of it involves some breaking, some of it involves some treading and some crushing, and sometimes it's some foot fungus. There's probably parts of your life right now you're like, yep, I know where the foot fungus part of my life is right now. Right? But that's how we get to the wine. Question number three. What is the new thing that God might be wanting to do in and through you right now? As you, as you reflect, I'd encourage you guys this, this week, just even sit in that question. Lord, what's the new thing? Like, what's the thing you want me to step into? Can I pray for you guys? Would that be okay? Father, I just, I just pray for this church. I pray for the work that you've been doing and the powerful ways that you have been impacting this city for the sake of your kingdom. I thank you for the fact that you are a God that just like never stops. You never give up. You keep moving forward. And even when our own brokenness gets in the way, you're so compassionate. You put your arm around us and you help us to move forward if we just open up our hands. I thank you for that that's the kind of church this is. And Lord, right now, I pray your favor and your blessing over every person in this room. And I ask that you would literally unleash your new wine. That you would literally pour out your Holy Spirit on everybody here for the next work that you're calling this church to. The good stuff that's ahead. The friends, the neighbors, the co-workers, the people who are sitting beside them that just need the gospel. The parts of the city that are dark, that are broken, that feel impossible to break into, that you're going to use this church to impact for the sake of your kingdom. Those that are going to be healed, those that are going to be set free, 
and those, Jesus, that are going to find you for the first time. All as a result of people willing to leave their hands open. And I pray that favor and that blessing over this church.